Hey everybody, welcome to the Calhoun Ward Living Histories Podcast. I am your host, John Phillips, a member of the Calhoun Ward. Let's dive in and learn more about our ward members. Hi, I'm Taylor Barlow. I um, was born and raised in Calhoun, Georgia. My parents are Terry and Debbie Barlow, and I am the youngest of four kids. The oldest is Keisha. She's married and has six kids. Um, and then Jonathan is the second oldest. He's married and has three kids. And then Brant is the one right above me, and he has three kids. I um, went to Calhoun City Schools the whole time from kindergarten to graduation and therefore got to uh, be with the same people. So it was a very small town. And when I was growing up uh, in the Calhoun branch, it was so small we called it a twig because it wasn't large enough to be a branch. Um, my dad was the branch president for a long period of my formative years, and so he always called on me and my siblings to do things. So I, I had an early education in the church, and I was really grateful for uh, being a member of the church my whole life and being able to um, be raised with such good values. I enjoyed lots of things as a child. I had a very happy childhood hanging out with lots of cousins and my siblings. My siblings were very good to me. We often were found playing basketball in the front yard as well as uh, baseball um, and swimming. Um, my older sister was 12 years older than me, so I remember being able to spend many times driving around in her car listening to her 80s music and uh, going rollerblading at the park. Um, so yeah, just a lot of happy childhood memories. And uh, later in life, I got to um, attend seminary and play basketball for school and softball, and a little bit of soccer, which I was not good at. Um, and then I went on to go to BYU and study history and psychology. I went on a mission to Anaheim, California in 2009 to 2011. Um, and then I went back to BYU and, and studied uh, more intensely with psychology and started working in the social work field. And then I turned to office work uh, because social work was hard. So um, I'm now in accounting. So huge trajectory change. But yeah, that's where I am. Um, some of my earliest memories um, were having all of my cousins over, and we had a picnic table on the back porch, and we'd always uh, celebrate everyone's birthdays, and everyone seemed to have a pair birthday cousin. And so um, lots of good memories of just being um, cake-faced kids playing around. We weren't wealthy at all. Our cousins weren't wealthy, but we had a very good time together. Um, we did get to enjoy video games together. Um, some of our best times were just horse playing and um, spend the night parties every weekend in whatever combination of cousins that meant. Um, I was a huge tomboy, and I always and I had all these boy cousins. I only had one girl cousin. Um, and so I was always trying to hang out with the boys and, and run as fast as them and throw as hard as them and as far as them. And it, it did well for me for uh, athletics later, not so much for them because, you know, they didn't have anyone to practice against that was as good as them, but, but I, I was able to rise to them. Um, another early memory that I have is um, of us always going to my grandparents' house in Gulfport, Mississippi. My, my dad's parents 
ended up there after my grandfather's Air Force uh, career. And every time that we went, um, we would stay with them and we'd always have a huge, um, big feast of uh, shrimp that my grandfather would uh, boil and season up just perfectly. My brothers always chose to eat Domino's pizza instead. I thought they were crazy because that shrimp was so good, getting it from the, the Gulf fresh. Um, and then my aunt, she has cerebral palsy, and so she um, is a, is very childlike. She's probably at about a seven-year-old uh, level, and she had a whole playroom full of the coolest toys I'd ever had, I'd ever seen in my life. And so every time we got to go, um, I just would wig out with being able to play with all these cool toys, electric guitars that were you know, not strings, but buttons that use batteries on. And we'd always watch uh, the Muppets. She loved the Muppets. Um, she loved ALF, the TV show. So she always had all these uh, stuffed animals that we would play with. Um, yeah, that, that was, for a whole week, usually every summer we would drive over to Mississippi and um, we'd always pile in the whatever car we had that, that year. And I'd have to sit in the middle between my two long-legged brothers and be squished uh, right in front of the, the air conditioner and freeze the whole time. Um, but it, it, was, it was good times. We had lots of good um, adventures together as a family. Um, speaking of car rides, we got to take my sister out to Rick's College in Idaho. And uh, that one, I remember one night in particular, we had dropped her off and we had gone to Yellowstone um, after and we got kind of were delayed in getting out of the park and so it was dark and it was starting to snow and we were on a mountain road going around and around and there was no guard guardrail and my dad not ever really driving in snow um, you know white knuckled on the steering wheel and all of us just praying the whole time that we would get through these snow drifts and make it to where we needed to um, one of my earliest memories of of praying really hard in the car in snow i i definitely did that a lot when i moved out to utah later in my 20s but uh yeah that was my first experience with that no i have i have that memory too uh my sister was from my mom's first marriage so um my dad adopted her and then when she was older um we went to the temple so she could be sealed to all of us and so i remember me and my brothers sitting in the what they where they used to have like a children's area not so much outside the temple but actually inside the temple we were all dressed in white and there was a little play area where they kept us while the adults did whatever they were doing talking to the temple president or whatever it may be and I just remember um, such a good feeling of not knowing what I was doing I was probably about four years old uh, not knowing what we were doing but knowing it was really neat and it was a very special day and then being led into the ceiling room and seeing my family and being able to kneel at the altar with them, that was a really neat experience to, to be sealed to her. Um, so talking about my teenage years, middle school and high school, um, I, I really didn't want to grow up. I was the baby of the family, and I loved being young. I loved being doted on. I wouldn't say that I was spoiled, but I definitely um, thrived in the youngest position. Um, and I remember... Um, having these big feelings all of a sudden, you know, with with your body changing and your your mind growing, I just remember having big feelings and passions about things that I, I wanted to, to do the right thing. I wanted to be the best at this. I wanted to pursue this. 
Um, and so around uh, sixth grade, I, I started, you know, trying to academically succeed at things and um, had excellent teachers in middle school. We, we got to go to Colonial Williamsburg uh, for our eighth grade trip, and they only took some of the top academic students. Um, it was one of my favorite trips I've ever been on. Um, loving history, that was that was definitely my wheelhouse to enjoy. Um, and the friends that I had in school were very good friends. I didn't hang out with them quite as much um, outside of school, but we were always together. We always had the same classes. Uh, back then, Calhoun uh, was was rather small. It was only a 2A school. Um, so great, great people to grow up with, um, great teachers, high school. Um, I, I lost a little bit of my passion. I became a little bit more passive and reserved, but still wanted to do good things, still very much wanted to uh, please my parents and be a part of the church and be a good example to others. I remember going to seminary and just feeling so energized every morning uh, and going into school. Everyone would come into homeroom and be so tired and groggy, and I'd be ready to go and just so grateful that, that seminary was that, that shot in the arm that I needed to be able to survive my teenage years. Again, I, I had a great, a great childhood, great teenage uh, years. My parents were good to me. They trusted me. I loved the trust that they gave me. I, I didn't have a curfew. But there was kind of an unspoken rule of, you know, you need to be home at certain times or you need to make sure that you've arranged for um, spending the night with people that, that we trust or that we know will take care of you. And um, my world really opened up when I was 14 and I started being able to go to dances and youth conferences and then eventually getting to drive. I found uh, great friends in the stake that are still friends. We, we all went to BYU together, and they taught me so much. I was able to be in their homes a lot and see how their family lived the gospel. Um, and I also got to partake in things that maybe our family couldn't afford. Um, I, EFY was a really neat thing that I got to do my junior and senior year. And before that, I didn't really even know what EFY was. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of, of good times. I loved the church dances every month. I loved um, serving on the state youth committee. I loved going to seminary. I I found joy in the gospel, and I found that my best self was when I was able to be happy and inclusive with the people that were at church. I loved to go around and, and pick up kids from Ackworth or Canton or wherever it be, and then I'll meet up in Marietta at the state center to go play basketball or uh, go to the youth activities. Um, I, I definitely am blessed and grateful for what I was given, despite coming from a, a small town, a small school. I also um, really enjoyed basketball. It was um, something that I, I think I was naturally good at, but then being able to play it for so many years, I was able to hone my experience and, uh, and make a craft out of it a little bit more. Um, unfortunately, at that time in high school, when I should have been moving on to varsity, I became uh, mistrustful or um, disappointed in not getting the support in our coaching staff that may maybe the other uh, sports were getting. We had a lot of turnover, a, a different coach almost every year. And so um, I think it was my after my junior year, I stopped playing, which I somewhat regret, but at the same time, 
it freed up my uh, space for, for other things, my time for other things. And not so much a um, something that you would think would go in line with sports and athletics. I also was a huge band nerd. Um, Calhoun had a more militant style band, um, and it was very inclusive. You didn't have to be a, a very good uh, professional musical player of any sorts. Um, I did enjoy playing and I tried to, to be good at it, but um, we just had a really good time. Our band director, Michael Clark, just loved to have fun with us and make sure that we knew that we were included no matter what level we were at. So I started playing the saxophone, the alto sax, in sixth grade. And then in uh, eighth grade, I switched to tenor sax and marched with that because back then we marched as eighth graders. And I realized quickly that I did not want to march with such a large instrument. And so the following year, I, um, I got to play the mellophone, which going from a woodwind reed instrument to a, um, a brass valve instrument was difficult, but I was able to pick it up. And my dad being the trumpet player that he is, I found great pleasure in being able to play a valve instrument as well. And um, I, I enjoyed how loud the mellophone was. There were only um, six of us usually. I think one year we had eight, but in a band of 220 kids, it was a small section, but we were able to uh, bring some power. So I, I enjoyed that, being small but powerful. Um, and I did that up until my senior year. I actually got to be band president, whatever that meant. I, I don't even remember the actual position tasks, but um, it was it was fun to to be in band and to love band and have those friends and that um, love for music to grow. Um, so talking about my family and and my uh, interactions with them, I I really look up to my parents. My parents were um, both converts, and their story is very unique. As a missionary myself, their story would boggle my mind um, at how beautiful and perfect and golden it was. I always looked for a Terry and Debbie Barlow on my mission to, to help convert. Um, the missionaries were, uh, the sister missionaries that were in Calhoun at the time, they were looking for honest seekers of truth. And my, my mom's situation, she had lost her mom to cancer quickly when she was 10 years old as the oldest of four. And her father, being an alcoholic, was not uh, a very um, consistent parent. And so she quickly had to grow up and learn to, to be there for her siblings and to be there for herself when no one else would. And so my mom is, is a great hero and has quite the legacy in our family of, um, of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and making something of yourself. And um, she got married um, and had my sister, and unfortunately the man she married was not a great husband or father, and um, and so after divorce, she found herself living with her sister and her small daughter, and one day the sister missionaries knocked on their front door, um, and no one answered, and so they went around through the gate to the backyard and found my mom and, and my sister sunbathing after washing the car one day. And the sister said, we've been praying, and we saw your house, and we're here to talk to you about the gospel. And my mom, not not being in a place to receive them, said, well, come back another time, and, and they did. And the, the story goes that 
my mom um, was very interested in the idea of families being together forever, having lost her mom at such a young age and her mom being such a rock star that she was, I think that that really resonated with her in receiving the gospel. Um, and uh, my favorite part of that whole story is, is my mom decides to get baptized after being taught the discussions multiple times um, late one night, and she calls the missionaries, and of course they were probably sleeping. But she says, hey, I, I think I'm ready to be baptized. And all she hears is a thud of the phone dropping, and then the them, the missionaries jumping on the bed from excitement. And she's like, what in the world is going on? And they finally get back on the phone and just say how excited they are. And um, and she was baptized in the Rome ward where um, Calhoun was then district to go. Um, and then on the other side, my dad, he grew up um, as a Air Force brat and, and moved a lot. His parents were very good people. I, I really um, enjoyed knowing his parents for the time that I did in my life. And um, my dad is just a, a good human. He's he's meek and mild and, and humble. And um, he also uh, went into the military. He was in the Navy. That's where he met his first wife. And uh, they eventually got divorced. And he had a friend that brought him to Atlanta. And then eventually he found a job in Calhoun. So both of them were, were living as divorcees um, on opposite opposite ends of the of Calhoun and being taught by the same missionaries. The missionaries found my dad through um, genealogy. They, they've tried him at first, um, just, hey, we're missionaries, and, and he's like, oh, they can't teach me anything. They're just young girls. He was, I think, in his early 30s. And um, somehow Twyla Reese got word that he was... Uh, he was approached by the missionaries, and she said, "You need to go back, and and talk to him about family history. That's how you, that's how you get your foot in the door." And so they they went, and he wasn't there, and left a pamphlet. But he ended up calling him, and uh, the rest is history for him. He also got baptized. I want to say it was only a week apart from mom. Like I think he attended her baptism. Um, I could be wrong on those details, but but he got baptized shortly after, and then. Being the single young people that they are, the sister missionaries very wisely started putting them together romantically and said, why don't you guys, you know, come with us bowling or why don't you drive together to Rome so you save on gas and money? And and they dated for a whole two weeks before getting engaged. And, uh, and then they waited a year to go to the Salt Lake Temple and be sold there. And then my sister got to stay with the sister missionaries that taught them. Um, at BYU is where they were living at the time, so my sister stayed with them while my parents went on a, a honeymoon to the um, the Teton Mountains, and uh, that's where my family started. And then my brother Jonathan came shortly after, and then Brand, and then myself. So overall, my my parents are such good examples of not just accepting the gospel and being converted, but but jumping in both feet, like they. They forsake, forsook the world that they were living in. They they gave up coffee and drinking and all kinds of you know things that that typical people enjoy in this life, um, and they dedicated themselves to raising their family in a righteous way and and creating new new habits and you know some of their family, especially on my mom's side, was was not supportive of that. 
uh, in her decision, but she she carried on, and uh, we we owe so much to them. Our our my life compared to her life and the things that she's had to go through, it's night and day difference. Like I am so blessed compared to what she's had to go through and and the trials that she, that um, that she had to endure. It's really amazing how you really can be a chain breaker um, so quickly when you choose it and when the Lord works on you that way. Um, my sister, again, she was about 12 years older than me. She was always this huge light, bright of joy in my life. It was like having a second mom and a big sister all rolled up into one. And um, we would go out and do different things and and everyone always thought that I was her daughter and it was just really funny and kind of scandalous because she was only about 16. But one of my earliest memories of my sister, other than, you know, us, her taking us to do picnics and hikes and things like that, um, she was a cheerleader and um, they came to Calhoun Eastside School where I was a kindergartner and she was a senior at the time. And I was sitting in the large assembly in the gym and she and all the other cheerleaders are dressed in these Santa costumes for Christmas. And she finds me in the crowd and, and leans down and gives me a kiss. And the whole gym just goes, ooh. And I'm just like, she's my sister. I was so embarrassed. I was like red-faced and everything. But I was like, she found me out of all the kids. And like, it was really neat because, you know, teenagers can very easily go and do their own thing and, you know, leave their, their siblings at home to do child things. And she was very good at always including me and and loving me and she'd come back from college and we shared a room and she'd come home from her dates and and tell me about all her life adventures and it, it really taught me to to listen and to be there for people and uh I, I really enjoy that that companionship that that she and I had and the respect that she gave me at such a young age that that I mattered to her um my brothers and I my older brother Jonathan he was always the peacemaker he always wanted to please our parents and and do the right thing. Um, he never had much confidence as a teenager. I'm, I don't know why. I think he's pretty awesome. Um, but he did show choir and he played basketball and all these different things. And he always was very inclusive as well. He always, uh, he and I always got along really well. And, and with all the cousins and, and the squabbles that we would get into, he always was trying to break that up and and be the good big brother, big cousin uh, example to everyone. And he still is taking care of our family in ways like that now. Um, and then Brant, Brant and I were somewhat close in age, uh, I think three, three years apart. So when he was a senior, I was a freshman. So we got to be in band for a couple of years together. And he and I always were, were clashing. Um, I, I didn't really understand what made him tick. And I don't think he understood what made me tick. And, uh, but he, he always was there for me when I needed it. He, um, I, I, he's in all my childhood memories of us doing fun things. Um, we collected baseball cards. We had posters on our walls of all the, the new and great athletes that were around at the time and always got his hand-me-downs. And as a tomboy, I loved it, you know, Umbro's shorts and Nike shirts and things like that. Um, and he he never really loved academics. He had a really great friend group in high school. They were very close, and I, I looked up to that, and they always um, said hi to me and things like that. I remember one time in band, he um, th the section leader when I was an eighth grader, saxophone player, the 
the section leader was kind of being mean to me. And um, somehow Brant found out, and he comes over with his whole drumline squad. And he, like, gets up on his face, like, I heard you're messing with my, my sister. And he didn't do anything, just the fact that he was he wanted to do that for me. I thought that was really cute, despite us not, you know, getting along super well. So um, he was really neat. He surprised us a good bit. Um, he didn't ever want to talk about going on a mission, but when he did, um, he just thrived. He soared. Um, you know, he, he didn't like reading, but he ended up reading the whole Old Testament and New Testament in the, in the MTC alone. And so, um, I mean, I always expected great things out of Keisha and Jonathan um, because I was closer to them, and they had more of a... Um, similar joyful vibe that I did, and Brant always seemed to want to go a little bit different path um, than the rest of us, but but he did great things, and so he served in Brazil. Jonathan served in Mexico, and then Keisha served a sign language mission in Arizona and Michigan, and that's where she ended up meeting her husband, who, um, Aaron is a fantastic person. I really enjoy him um, as an 11-year-old. He, I, I found him very strange, but he has since turned out to be one of the best people I know. And then um, Jonathan's wife, Amy, I actually, we grew up in the same state together, but she was older than me. But she's also one of the best people I know, um, a, a person without guile. She truly just wants to, to love people and be there for them. Um, and then Brant is, he's currently going through a divorce, so um, that. As much as we hate that, and it's been one of the hardest things we've ever gone through as a family, and I'm sure that he's ever going to go through, um, I, I'm grateful that we've been able to get closer through it. Um, we've been able to hang out with him more and see a side of him that I've always wanted to see, and we've been able to be there for him in ways that we hadn't uh, previously. So, it, I mean, it's it's true, those, those trials of refining, if we use them properly, they really can uh, bring us closer together and unite us better. So I'm grateful for that and, and for the good father that he is. And, uh, and he's just, he's blown it out of the water. He's, he's really a rock star in humility and patience and enduring all of the things that he's having to go through. I mean, it's, it's hard on everybody. I think that's probably why I'm talking about him the most because he's the one that's on my heart and my mind the most right now. Um, but yeah, I have a great family. I, we're just so blessed. I mean, we've all uh, gone on missions, gone to the temple. My parents are currently serving a mission. I, my dad often will say, I don't know how I got this lucky. I don't know what I did to deserve all this. And, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, that, that despite our, our frailties and our, our weaknesses, and we have many, um, we, we definitely love each other and we're there for each other. And our parents set a very high bar, despite being bar lows, <laughs> um, of, of living the gospel and maintaining uh, integrity. So um, after high school, I attended BYU in Provo, Utah. Um, the story of, of going to BYU, you, you'd think that it's like, oh, something I always dreamed of, and it was what I was destined to do, but... Right around 16, as I mentioned earlier, I started getting a little bit more passive and a little bit more uh, introverted and 
not really knowing if I re if I wanted to grow up and I wanted to go do things. And because of my really good friend group, um, they were all applying to BYU and, and going to do things. And my sister had gone to Rick's and BYU. I was like, well, I, I guess I could do this. I, I, I could go do that. Um, my brothers going on missions, they were they actually overlapped at the same time. And, and so they hadn't made any college plans. And so I, I just really wasn't sure what I was going to do. But I applied to BYU and BYU-Idaho. I actually got into BYU-Idaho with a scholarship, but I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want to go to BYU-Idaho for whatever reason. It might be the snow. Um, but yeah, I never told them about the free money part. And uh, and so one day I get the acceptance letter in the mail, and I, I drive up the driveway, and I tell Mom, oh, I, I didn't get into BYU, and and I trick her, and then I surprise her that actually, no, I did. It's all good. Um, still didn't tell her about the scholarship to BYU-Idaho because I really didn't want to be made to go there. Um, told her probably like a few years ago from now. Um, so I ended up going out August of 2004 after graduation, and I lived um, in the dorms on campus, and I just started taking my general courses, not knowing really what I was going to do. Again, I was pretty unsure kid and just having the best time at college staying up till all hours of the night making friends with all kinds of people from different places just really enjoying living that that independent life and um I think always in the back of my head I was like well I've always loved history I guess I could do history teaching or something along those lines and so after sophomore year, you have to start taking your, your actual classes. So I, I still wasn't sure. I did take all the history classes I was supposed to, but I started slowing down my speed of school so that I could take some classes, but maybe not pay for so many that, or, you know, bog myself down with so many that it, it if I needed to get out of it, I it would be difficult. Um, but also at that time, my junior year, I moved uh, farther away from campus, and I lived with one of my really good friends, but I just remember that year being a really hard year, um, falling into into a depression and and struggling to know what the purpose of my life was, and um, not doing well academically. Um, yeah, just kind of having this darkness in my life that I couldn't really get rid of. And then um, to try and get myself out of it, I started thinking about a mission, but I, I knew that it would be a hard thing to go from being low to being, uh, you know, hardworking and, and disciplined. And so I chose to go um, with some friends to Boston to sell pest control for the summer and see if I could, you know, regain some confidence, make some money, have an adventure, all these types of things. And I had a great time. But it still didn't kick this this lack of direction in my life. And I ended up coming back to Atlanta and taking a semester off. Um, so I, I still worked with the pest control, um, just spraying houses around South Atlanta with the team that was there and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I remember this uh, one Sunday where I was just feeling like a failure, not feeling like I, I didn't have anything else to give, or I, I just was a disappointment to everyone around me. And my parents approached me after after uh, Sunday dinner, it was just the three of us, and, and started talking about how I don't have to do things the cookie cutter way. Like there's other options. You could go to a trade school, you could take more time off, you could 
do anything. The sky's the limit. And for the first time in a while, I kind of let those floodgates open of like all the things I'd been holding in of how I didn't enjoy doing this or I didn't know what course to take. I All the things I'd bottled up, I finally let them flow. And, um, you know, I got a, a priesthood blessing from my dad and, and things started going on up and up. And I, so I decided, okay, so I'm going to go to a, a school here and stay closer to home. And so I got on the, the internet to sign up for KSU. And as soon as I got on the page, I was like, no, I need to go back to BYU. I need to finish what I started. And um, so very quickly from like Thanksgiving to the beginning of December, I, I was on the course of going back and scrambling to find housing and scrambling to get my parents on board with, with me taking the car out there and all the things. And um, it was probably one of the best decisions I made. I still wasn't all the way better, um, but I was on the right trajectory. And I remember that next summer, so it must have been winter of 2008. That next summer, um, I started getting more involved in the ward that I was in that I found randomly. And then at the end of that summer, um, I started serving in Relief Society and getting to know more people and feeling like my, my life had purpose again, that I was able to reach outside of myself. And then I, for fall semester, I had... Uh, two return missionaries move into my apartment complex or into the apartment that I was in and then several other I'd say there were like 20 others that were in the three apartments near me and that that changed my life as well because for the first time I was living with people that had gone on missions and they were they were sharing stories and they were showing this power that they had from serving the Lord for for that um, for that sacrifice that they'd done and slowly but surely, it was imprinted upon my mind that this is something I wanted for my life, that I would regret not going, that I would regret um, not taking advantage of the time that I had. And, and by this time, I was 22, um, so I should have been finishing college, but I was just still trying to figure out what I wanted to major in. And um, there was a, a couple of friends in particular that just really helped me understand that when you have a desire to serve, then you're called to the work. And um, I worked hard on, on myself to get myself prepared. And I remember getting to a point where things were feeling right again. The, the darkness that I had experienced earlier had finally subsided, and I was back to being myself again. And I, I was reading the scriptures the night before, um, and had ended up not being able to finish Alma 5. It's a, it's a long chapter. It's a good one about having uh, his image in your countenance. And so where I picked up um, the next night after, so I, I knelt down to pray, and the prayer was, Heavenly Father, I feel like I should go on a mission. Like, I, I know this isn't really something that I had pursued it when I was maybe like 21 thinking about it, but then here I am again thinking maybe this is, this is what I need to do. And I ended up, <laughs> I ended the prayer something like, what do you think? How do you feel about that? And then I get up and I open to where I left off the night before and it said something to the effect of, yeah, I say unto you, uh, go and with a mighty voice, go and preach repentance unto these people. And not only did the words hit me very strongly and poignantly, but but the spirit washed over me, and it it was a very much a confirmation, one of the biggest signs I'd ever been uh, ever received from the spirit of yes, this is definitely what you need to do. And so that next uh, semester, 
I started preparing my papers and, and put them in, and I, I think I received my call in June of 2009. I moved home quickly after that, and um, my endowments were in September? Let's see. No, end of August, August 22nd of 2008, and then I left for the MTC September 16th. Uh, reported and my call was to Anaheim, California, going Spanish speaking because at that time anybody that was going to be English speaking actually went to the MTC Spanish speaking so that you could uh, at least do a door approach. Um, so I went on my mission and I was in the MTC for nine weeks and learning Spanish and I loved the district that I was with. I loved the elders and sister that I was with and our teachers. Um, and again, I didn't want to move on. I, I get really comfortable in, in where I'm at. It's safe and good. And uh, we had a really good time. And so the, then we actually did have to leave. It was November, the middle of November, I think, when I finally left. And uh, like a week before Thanksgiving. And I'm sitting in the mission home in Anaheim. And all the trainers that are there, um, we, we were eating lunch together, and there was one that was from the Spanish ward, there was one from the Simone ward, and there was one from the English ward. And the, me and the other two sisters were all like, who's going where? Like, this is going to be crazy. Uh, all of us went to the MTC for Spanish and English. And so the mission president interviews us and comes back out and tells us where we're going, and I went Samoan. And I, I didn't even know much about Polynesians. I didn't know what... Samoans were. I, I mean, my extent of knowing Polynesians was um, the BYU football team and Johnny Lingo. So I quickly learned that that was the place for me. I loved uh, serving Samoan. I loved the people, big hearts. Um, the food was fantastic. I Meat and potatoes grill, that was really great for me. And we got to eat with our hands. I never mastered the language. I was there for four and a half months. And it was quite a struggle because the Lord really had to break me down and, and break my will and uh, help me see that I need to do it his way, not my way. Um, so I learned a lot those first four and a half months. And uh, we covered the whole mission at that time because Polynesians lived all over the mission and they, they gathered in two places in Anaheim and Garden Grove for the congregation. So um, it was fun to go all over the mission and see, you know, from the ocean up to the, to the hills. Um, the the beauty of California, and then um, and then I went to Orange County, uh, Newport Beach First Ward. I love that ward. I was there for nine months, and I had three different companions there, and each one of them I trained, and that about killed me because training is so hard. But um, I love each one of them differently, and um, and it, it was definitely a refiner's fire there. Um, I got to teach some of the most beautiful people. One of them, uh, his name was Zegosh Kofiakovsky, and he was uh, here on a school visa from Poland, and he lived alone. Um, he had nothing to his name. He had a mattress on the floor, and he would get done with his job and school around 9 o'clock at night, so we would have to um, hurry and teach him every night between the hours of 9 and 9.30 so we could be home in time. And he didn't know English. And so we got a Polish Book of Mormon, and we had drawings and a, a little stick figure, and we would 
we would open the scriptures to what we thought was the same verse in his Polish Book of Mormon, and we'd open it in ours and have him read it, and then we'd act it out on the floor with the little stick figure of, of Greg and then the picture of the Savior, and we'd talk about repentance, and we'd, we'd show him what we thought was the word for repentance in his scriptures and then move him closer to Christ and then show him the word for sin and move him away from Christ. And, and that's that just sitting in the floor trying to, to play charades so that, that he could understand what we were teaching him. And one of my favorite days was when he got baptized and at the uh, as we were exiting the building, taking him to his car, and he the ward had gotten him a new suit, and so he was taking his baptismal clothes to the car, and he said, now you are my sisters in his broken English. And I just, oh, it was the best. We loved him so much. Um, one of the things I noticed on my mission was that People who are ready to receive what the Lord has for them, things go really smoothly. Um, it, you know, you toil and labor so much to get these people to want to accept the gospel, but when they're not doing what we ask them to do as missionaries, when they're not coming to the invitation, coming to the Lord through reading the scriptures or coming to church or praying about it, then it, it feels like an uphill battle and it feels like you're working really, really hard but those who do what you're you're asking them to do and are having those moments of quiet conversion when you're not there, those are the, the converts that just zoom to baptism. They might get a hiccup here or a hiccup there, but but yeah, they they are they're the golden the golden ones. Um, there's another lady, her name was Lepe, uh, in the Samoan ward, and she would say to us, she was living with her cousin who was a member, and we went over to see if she would be interested in, in learning about the gospel. And she said to us on multiple occasions, I'm a diehard Presbyterian. I'm a diehard Presbyterian. And we invited her to read the Book of Mormon one day, and uh, we didn't really, you know, think much of it because, um, you know, that's what we always do. We always try to help people understand the importance of the Book of Mormon. And we come back the next time, and she read it, and no longer did she say, I'm a diehard Presbyterian. She shared with us her, her story of of feeling the spirit and knowing that the book was true. And from there, she was able to build a whole testimony and join the church. And I remember that day, she, I mean, she had raised her family. She had husbands that, um, she, she was an independent woman and she was strong and, and just a firecracker. But the day that she got baptized, I remember being in the bab in the uh, bathroom, helping her get dressed and helping her know what to expect. And, her just kind of melting like a puddle, saying, "Oh, I'm scared. I don't, you know, I, I don't know why I'm crying, but you know, it, it was feeling like, like it should be that she was being like a child, submissive, meek, humble, and patient, and and getting to be there kind of as a, a gospel parent to to usher her uh, through that door and uh, and be there for her. It was a really beautiful experience." Um, I ended my mission, well, so I went nine months in um, Newport Beach First Ward, where it's some of the most affluent areas of Orange County, of California, meeting some of the poorest people and um, just seeing the beauty of what can be done with those resources to help others and meeting just fantastic leaders of the church. And then I moved to uh, Garden Grove, which is another suburb uh, near Anaheim, uh, outside of LA and meeting also very good people. I, I taught a, a man from the Philippines who 
um, was such an example to me. He was very quiet, very meek. Um, one of my favorite mission stories happened with him. We were teaching him, and he was just so good, and he would come to church by himself despite you know, us inviting his family to come with him. He had a wife and a couple of older children, and he would just come and show up and be there, and he would rarely participate because he was such a shy, young, uh, shy, reserved person. And, um, but, but he did all the things we asked him to do. And so when we asked him to be baptized, he, he was ready. But I remember, um, we liked to go over with the investigators, the baptismal interview questions so that when they're asked by the district leader, all the questions that are very similar to temple recommend questions, that they're not, you know, nervous about it or caught off guard, that they have a, a ready answer. And so me and my companion brought with us uh, a couple from the stake that we thought would get along well with him because they had served their their senior mission in the Philippines, and he actually happened to be the former uh, stake president. And so I was a little intimidated by having him with us. Um, and... And so I was hoping to have him speak and, and share a lot of goodness, but we got to the point in the baptismal interview question that brought up a topic that we had never discussed uh, before this deeply. So it was the law of chastity. And and at this moment, it was when uh, Don, his name was Don, um, decided to share with us that he had been unfaithful to his wife several, several years ago. And, you know, with this former state president sitting next to you, you think you're going to get, you know, that kind of power to say, you know, what he's going to say. And you're like, just waiting for him to, to speak and say, okay, what do you say to that? And, um, I looked at him and he didn't say anything. And I was like, this is on me. I have to say something about this. Like, I'm just this punk kid. What do I know? And I mean, these are heavy, heavy dilemmas. And, and he, Don said, you know, is, is this, is this going to stop me from being baptized? And I didn't know what to say, but I knew I needed to open my mouth. And the most beautiful words came out that were not mine. And I said, that's okay. Um, the atonement and baptism take care of that too. Because um, we could tell that he had had forsaken that, that sin and had improved his marriage since. And it was, I'm sure, way more of a, a big impact for me, life lesson, that that the atonement covers all. It is ever-reaching, and and he has descended below it all. So I'm grateful that that former state president didn't say anything so that I could learn it for myself, that the words could come from my mouth and be imprinted on my heart, that um, that's why we were there. And um, so, yeah, I finished my, my mission um, a few months after that in the Spanish ward in Anaheim, and it was really interesting. I, I ended my mission the way I began it, where I didn't know the language, but I, I tried to do a better job this time because the, love, the language of love is apparent despite words. And so I just tried to love those members as much as I could because the Spanish I learned at MTC was not coming back to my remembrance very well. And, uh, but my companion did a really good job of still trying to include me in my frailty and and loving her and helping her see that she was a, a big part of the work in that area since I couldn't speak the language um, was really fun too. I I had a lot of hard times with companions. I'm a hard person to live with and I I tend to be hard on, on those I love. And so it was a struggle, but my, my goal was to love everyone that I that I 
uh, was companions with, and I love each of them uh, in their own unique ways and was able to hang out with a lot of them after after the mission. A lot of my companions also had a lot of mental uh, problems. Uh, I had one companion that, that suffered with um, panic disorder, and and she would often just have to pause life and and sort things out. And it, it was, as a young person, I felt that it was very heavy. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help. Another companion that I had, from, she was from Micronesia. She, had no, she lived on the equator. She thought it was cold when it was 85. Um, she lived a very different life than me. And, you know, she had experienced some um, abuse in her early years a lot of trauma that she had never been able to tell anybody about. And, and so she was able to open up to me about it. And so th things that, that I had never encountered before were coming at me in very real heavy ways on, on my mission. And I was being put in a position where I started to care about mental health and how people uh, could deal with the trauma in their life. And so when I got back from my mission, not only was I dealing with my own heavy stuff that, you know, having to to be a support to others and being a little broken because of that, but I also was now found a new passion. I wanted to be there for people and counsel them and help them through through mental health tra uh, trauma and, and illnesses. And so um, having not completed my history degree, I kind of put it on the back burner and started pursuing psychology and social work. And I got really close to, to finishing that degree um, when they told me that I actually just needed to hurry up and finish whichever one I was closer to, and that was history. Um, so after school, I, I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to do history, but I started working in social work with the idea that I would be able to go back and do a, a degree in psychology or social work and then do a master's and do um, clinical social work to be a counselor. Um, but working in, I, so I, I worked at a facility for teenage girls with substance dependency problems, and it was a, a residential program so that um, as staff members, we were coming in and out of their living space. But we had about 15 girls in Provo at that facility, and um, I think that taught me just as much as my mission did about um, how to deal with uh, mental health, how to help others do that. I mean, it was just huge, huge life lessons of how to communicate properly, how to um, treat people when they struggle and when they don't have an ideal life. And then um, I started struggling with the same stuff that I struggled with my junior year before my mission, this darkness of life being hard. And then I, I started seeing a counselor because, you know, I was in that field. I should I should see a counselor too, not just recommend others to do it. And I was diagnosed with ADHD and depression. And I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense because ADHD to me growing up meant that you just couldn't sit still and that you couldn't focus or you couldn't read or you just academically weren't as successful as others. But for me, it meant this is why I have big emotions. This is why I don't think the same way as everyone else. This is why I felt different than other people. And, um, and so it solved a lot of questions and problems that I had within myself. I could take out all those things and say, this isn't a character flaw. This is just a weakness that I've been given because of the chemistry of my brain. 
uh, being the way that it is, that prefrontal cortex is not talking to the back of my brain and my decisions and my emotions aren't, aren't jiving together. And um, getting help for that was one of the best things I ever did because I was able to see the atonement in my life and reach it much more clearly, directly, and work on myself in a real way that wasn't um, based on the shame that I felt about myself. So I attribute that greatly to working at one in social work and also my mission opening me up to, to knowing and learning about those types of things. There was a stigma growing up that, you know, we didn't talk about mental health and we didn't, um, we didn't want to have to uncover all those, those ugly truths. So that was a, a big pivot, uh, pivot point in my life where um, I became a different person because of it, a better person, hopefully. But because of social work being underpaid and underappreciated and, and just a hard job, I needed to take a break and reevaluate again. So once again, the Lord's building me up and breaking me down. So I actually ended up taking a um, medical billing, a super random office job in Salt Lake and moving up there um, and just trying something different, seeing if there was something else out there for me and kind of just recuperating. I ended up hating it. It was... <laughs> not fun at all. Um, and that's what kind of gave me some growing pains. And the Lord pretty much was like, it's time for you to move back home. Um, being single and nearing the age of 30, 31, when you're about to get kicked out of the young single adult wards, um, you, you pretty much either go to the mid single ward at, that's at, over at uh, the Salt Lake uh, Institute area for the University of Utah. And it's like 600 members of mid singles, or you go to a family ward uh, where you are. And neither of those appealed to me. I've never been one to want to be in a huge crowd. Um, so I was praying what to do. And I remember sitting in sacrament meeting one day, I think it was 2015. And it was like a pillar of light through the window, like the clouds moved just the right way. And I was praying about, should I move home? Like this has always been in the back of my head that I should move home come back to where all my family was. And uh, as soon as, you know, the, the clouds broke and the sun shined through, I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. The spirit washed over me. And I was like, okay, I, I think this is what I need to move forward with. And I call my, I call my sister for the emotional support. And I call my brother for the financial support. And so each of them are like, can I do this? Is this possible? Can I move home in like a month? Um, Cause it was probably the beginning of December and I was like, I'm thinking January, like I just move home. I don't have a job, but can I do this? And they they reinforced like, yes, please, let's do this. And uh, my mom and my dad were unaware. I didn't tell them that I was moving home, but I did still have a plane ticket home for Christmas. So I used that to come home. And then my siblings helped me um, get wrapped in a box for Christmas morning. And I pop out of the box for mom and dad and my sign said, you know, I'm the newest mem newest resident of Georgia to help, like, let them know that I was moving home. And they just were so excited and cried and super happy that all their kids were going to be back in Georgia finally. Um, you know, I was, I'd was i been gone for over 12 years. And um, so I flew back home, packed up all my stuff. My sister-in-law flew out, and we drove my car home with the few possessions that I could fit in my Honda Accord. And I moved home without a job, with nowhere to live, just knowing that this is where I was supposed to be. Um, and uh, haven't haven't regretted it yet. So long story short, 
college was was not a normal path for me. I'm still trying to figure out my profession in life. And my mission taught me so many things that put me on, on many different paths that I had never pursued before. So after I decided to move home and jumped into this unknown world once again of not having a job and not knowing uh, you know, what I was gonna do for a living, it was kind of interesting because I moved in with my parents. I mean, they still had my childhood bedroom ready to go. Um, I never thought I'd be that, that kid that moved back at 30 um, to live with their parents, but here we are. And um, my grandmother had recently passed away and so we were getting her house ready to sell. And I was able to actually spend a lot of the first uh, few months, actually the whole year, working on her house, painting it, and, and just doing little things along the way to, to get it ready to sell. So that was something that kept me busy. And my family appreciated it because they all had jobs and, um, and children to raise and different things. And she just, her house was is our neighbor. So... Uh, it was very easy for me to commute to there with no uh, no funds. <laughs> and then um, because the office job that I chose in Salt Lake was not healing like I thought it would be, it was more damage, I really didn't want to pursue anything. Um, I, I needed to figure out what I was going to do if I was going to go back to school or if I was going to change professions or try a different profession. And um, so my, my mom, being a surgical nurse, um, she is rubbing shoulders with these doctors, and there was this one doctor in particular that had just moved from California, actually right where I served my mission, and um, his wife, and he had just had a child, and she needed help. And so they were looking for a nanny. My mom says, hey, my daughter needs a job, and you need a nanny, and she's really good with kids, so let's put them together. And so I went and interviewed and got the job, and and it was the most beautiful family. Um, it was such a neat experience to be there with them. I, I naturally love children, um, but these kids were just the best. Um, and I, I got to nanny in particular, the little boy named Edison, and he was just so smart and so good, and it just, it really did soothe my soul to be around them and to be a part of their life for a time. I I really grew to love them deeply, um, being in their home every day and being around them. I I think that they're some of the best people I know. And, uh, you know, they went through a couple of hard things while I was there, and so to be able to be there for them uh, during that time was, was really sacred for me. So... You know, I'd been there for about a year and a half and and starting to feel those those pings of you need to get on with your, your life and your profession, but again, still not quite knowing what I wanted to do. I wanted to do all the things and none of the things all at the same time and um, not really being able to do anything with the school schooling that I did do without going to get a master's. Um, I, I started looking for jobs kind of wherever it took me. And my brother, being in the staffing company, he had uh, a company in, in Shannon ne next to Rome called Advanced Steel Technology. And they were looking for a purchasing agent. And I had done some of that uh, a little bit in my office job in, in Salt Lake. And they needed somebody pretty quickly. I remember being um, 
at stake youth conference the day that my brother called and said, hey, can you interview? And I was like, no, I am literally running youth conference right now. I have zero time to even talk to you right now. Um, and so he calls back the, the plant manager who asked for the position to be filled in and said, well, just tell her to come in Monday morning. <laughs> and I was really grateful, but also wasn't looking forward to it because if you've ever done youth conference over the weekend, you know you're going to be exhausted. But I showed up Monday morning and um, and they put me actually in HR. And I'm like, what is this? So, I mean, I was just going all over the place for, for different jobs and trying to figure out what's going on. And eventually the HR thing got filled and I did uh, move over to purchasing. And now... Um, I'm at this company for, it's been five years, but a couple of years ago, I'm kind of reached the limit of what I can get out of purchasing at this company and the position of accounting supervisor has opened up, but that job requires a degree in accounting and I was not in accounting at all. I avoided that very much. And, uh, but I, I guess because they knew me and they knew the work I'd done, they were willing to, let it be an, an on-the-job training situation. And my, my boss, the controller of the company, she was willing to invest in me. And uh, she asked me to take some online courses and, and has been teaching me stuff that I should be paying a professor to, to teach me all along. And, uh, I mean, it, it's a lot of hours. I, I work a lot of hours um, and don't have a lot of time for m much anything else. But it's been a great experience for being uh, invested in, being able to uh, grow my own career and grow my own confidence and uh, become a supervisor, learning you know how to supervise people and manage people. And just um, having, having the ability to provide for myself and others, it's, it's a good feeling to feel constructive that way. Um, along the way, while living here, I've been able to work with the youth in the stake. So I, I got to be with Saki Holt. Uh, my first calling here in the Calhoun Ward was to be her counselor. And we had a lot of fun, but it was short-lived. Um, I became the secretary in Stake and Women uh, pretty, let's see, I think it was November after she had called me in the summer. And uh, so that kept me really busy. I feel like Heavenly Father knows that I need to have purpose and I need to serve outside of myself and do good things with the little time that I have outside of work. And so um, after serving in Young Women's and having a great time with that, I got called to be the stake seminary supervisor, which is a very hard job. A lot of behind-the-scenes stuff where you're not really with people, you're just dealing with... with um, the intricacies that that don't really bring joy like when you're with the people you serve. And then we had the pandemic hit and we had to figure out how to help the stake um, provide seminary over Zoom and, and deal with all the frustrations that, that came with that and still help students be successful. And, and it was a very hard time, very discouraging to see a lot of families struggle with that. Um, and then I got called back to the stake as a a young women's counselor, and that's where I'm currently serving. So a lot of time with the youth, one, because I think that my maturity level is about that, um, but also I, I just, I love the youth. I think that 
that they have so much potential and I love seeing how humble and good they are. They go through things that I never even dreamt of at that age they're dealing with now and and they're just doing such a good job at it. I I find them to be loving and accepting in ways that that we were not. And um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for my callings. They anchor me. They help me stay um, good. I know that I need to be a good example to them. And so it keeps me on my toes. And I just love being around them. I mean, just adults are great and all, but they're kind of past hope when you, you know, want to improve them, myself included. So being around them, it's, it's really rejuvenating and, and helps me see that we can all improve and change and, and be as good as them. So um, one of the interesting things about moving back was that my mom got cancer um, a couple of years after I moved back and right before the pandemic. I think be, because I am single and I, I don't have a family of my own to take care of and, and you know use my time towards, it was very much um, a divine thing that I was able to live with my parents and provide for myself, but also be able to take care of my mom. Um, anybody that's gone through cancer knows that the daily radiation, the chemotherapy, the the ill, um, the illness that comes from the cure is is sometimes uh, the worst part of cancer and uh, and it brought her very low and it was it was difficult but I was able to be there for her during that time my dad was also a rock star taking her every day to all the things and being there for her through all of it he always was by her side and then I'd get home from work and and relieve him and we'd just hang out and watch movies or I'd just you know sit next to her while she slept and she had a really hard time with food. Uh, it really messes up your digestive system when you're getting radiation to your abdomen. And so we we had a lot of fun times where I would just bring in all kinds of food and see if she liked any of it. And she, she found joy in, in having, you know, this, this banquet of food that was super random. And uh, just we grew closer through all of that. I'm really grateful that I didn't live in, in Utah still when that happened and that I was able to, to be there for her. And then quickly after that, the pandemic hit. So we were really good already at, at isolating and keeping to ourselves and, and doing all of that. It, we were well-practiced, but she was um, officially pronounced in remission shortly after um, the society shut down. And so it was, it was an interesting time for our family, but also very good. And, and the pandemic brought a lot of neat things to our family. Um, I I got lots of good benefits at, at work from it, where you wouldn't think that that's true because a lot of people really struggled with businesses, but ours thrived despite it. And my siblings all um, bought new houses, kind of dream home situations during the pandemic. They were richly blessed during all of this. Um, yeah, just our family was was very blessed during a very uh, hard time, and we're still seeing blessings from that. So, right now, I'm I'm just serving in women's. I'm doing accounting as best I can, <laughs> learning every day something new and learning how much I don't know about it all, but trying to improve my confidence and and my skill set. And I'm not sure what the years hold for for my. 
um, profession. My brother still thinks that I could make a better living doing purchasing as a purchasing agent or a buyer. Um, so yeah, time will tell which way I go. I still have in the back of my head to go back and get a master's in, in clinical social work and counsel. Um, it's still a passion that I have to listen to people and help them put their priorities in order and, and be there for them. So I'm not ruling it out. I might have a different profession every decade. We'll see. Lots of, lots of passions. My, my favorite things to do, the things that I value to do with my time, um, if, and I'm kind of a, an introvert, extrovert mixture. So, um, if it's just me trying to veg out, I, I love a good movie that keeps me on the edge of my seat. Um, I, or a good book. I love, um, just being around people, my, my core group of people, whether it be my family or my closest friends. I don't, I find the older I get, the less I need a lot of people and the more I just need a few good people. Um, I love my nieces and nephews. I have so many. Um, I even, I'm a great aunt now. I, I graduated from just regular that now I'm great. My nieces and nephew have children of their own now. And uh, I just take great joy in being around family. We love playing games. We love playing games. And we love movies and quoting movies. We probably quote movies more than we watch them now because it's hard to sit down and actually enjoy a full movie all the way through. Um, trivia, my family loves movie trivia or just trivia in general. I remember a lot of times, you know, we Barlow Tacos, a lot of people know about this. When we were younger, my parents wanted to find something that didn't keep mom in the kitchen after church for our meal. And so um, they chose tacos because there's so many different things going on that everyone can help. And so even as a young child, I was setting the table. My siblings were dicing tomatoes or um, making sure that the shells got on the, on the baking sheet and in the oven. So we all were in the kitchen making tacos every Sunday, and we had them every single Sunday. It was a tradition that we, we started when I was about one year old, and we still pretty much do that to this day, or at least my parents do. I don't always have tacos every Sunday, but <laughs> when we get together, we have tacos. And um, one of the things that, that we love doing while we're making these tacos is um, singing together just like random song lyrics that come into our head and harmonizing them or or going over the movie trivia, movie trivia that, that we are asking each other or just random trivia facts that my dad has because he's just a walking encyclopedia when he was dating my mom. And, she, you know, he would come over to pick her up and she wouldn't be ready as a typical woman. And he would just sit and read her encyclopedias. I mean, that, that was the kind of cool nerd that he was. And uh, so it, it's always enjoyable to to see who, who knows the actor or actress from something or who knows this historical, histor historical, I can't talk, historical tidbit that um, dad's quizzing us on. Um, but yeah, I, I find great joy in, in being happy with my family. I do have a few really good friends, um, some from college, some from here, and uh, I'm really blessed that the Heavenly Father continues to give me good people in my life that help me be a better version of myself. Um, so, yeah, being with people, whatever they're doing, I mean, it doesn't have to be anything particular. When I was a kid, 
I always wanted to be doing something. Um, we used to go boating a lot and, and jet skiing. I love jet skis. I love four-wheelers. Um, I love competition in general, so I think that's why the games always come out. Our family's been really big into pickleball lately. Every time we get together, especially when we go down to my brother's house in Griffin to support him over the weekends, we'll all pile in his house and, and go to the park and play pickleball and and just forget troubles for a while. And the kids are even getting into it now. Um, but it's a really simple game because you don't have to be super in shape to, um, to play it and to play it well. So, yeah, just people. I, I am very motivated by people and... Um, I tend to be a homebody if I'm not with the people that I love that, that energize me. So I don't think that my testimony came um, at a particular time. I think that it's definitely grown line upon line and that there are things that I can put my finger on and say, oh, that was pivotal for learning that part of, of the gospel and converting me. But um, being able to grow up in such a good gospel-centered home I always knew that it was right. I always knew that it was good and that it was true. I remember feeling the Spirit along the way, and um, I remember feeling the way the Spirit spoke to me as I was going through seminary. I had uh, had very good seminary teachers. My junior, senior year, I had Sister Wing, um, Julie Wing, and she taught me that the Spirit speaks to me through metaphors and symbolism. And that at any time, if I could find a metaphor symbolism symbolism in something that's just everyday humdrum life, that I, I knew that I had the companionship of the Holy Ghost. And so she taught me not only to learn how the Spirit spoke to me, but also to use those spiritual thoughts um, in class. She didn't want just um, the mundane devotional of read the scripture, say what it means in your opinion, and bear your testimony and sit down. She wanted to hear our spiritual experiences and thoughts from the week. And so, you know, little things of driving down the road, it being pitch black in the morning, going to seminary, and the rain falling on, on the windshield, and the lights only being able to see so far through that fog and darkness. I I very clearly saw the gospel there, that, that the mists of darkness are always there, but our lights are the faith in our Savior that, that the next bit of road is going to be clear and right, and that repentance is like the windshield wipers, that it wipes away the turmoil of life and the sins that, that pound against our, our windshield and things like that. I just, my mind was open to to the Spirit speaking to me. And then um, reading the Book of Mormon, um, and I didn't really understand the truth of it and the, and the significance of it. I always knew it was a companion, companion to the Bible and that it, it set us apart from the rest of the world and that it was a good book. Um, I, I remember it almost feeling like a, a magic trick that when I read the Book of Mormon as a teenager, I wouldn't fight with my mom. Like, it's just magic. That's just the way it happens. It's a formula, not realizing that it was softening me and that that's, you know, the spirit working on me and me being obedient and, and giving my will to God and, and, and obeying my parents. Um, so the older I got, the more these things started making sense more and more. And I just always felt comfortable at church. I always felt supported. I always felt like this was where I could be my best self. And so going on a mission and then um, teaching others about Joseph Smith, who I also always 
knew was good and right and true, I, I felt like I was able to stand next to him um, the way that that the early saints did where, you know, I, I really had to defend him in many instances when people were, were throwing anti-doctrine at us. Um, but I was able to, to bear witness and, and through that, my testimony of Joseph Smith and his pivotal part in, in this dispensation grew leaps and bounds, as well as the Book of Mormon. We, we did this thing on my mission. We were trained from our mission president. Uh, he called it placing the Book of Mormon in the hearts of those that we teach. And we would, we would open up to the first title page um, that was about um, you know, what the Book of Mormon is. You know, it's an ancient book of scripture. And then skip down to if you know the Book of Mormon, if you come to know the truth of the Book of Mormon, you also come to know that Joseph Smith is a prophet, that the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter day Saints, is the true church and kingdom of, of the Lord on the earth. And every time I did it, my testimony grew more and more of the, the truth of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and what sets us apart. Um, so, again, I've, I've always had a testimony. Um, I've always wanted to do the right thing. I've always felt like this is the exact place I needed to be. Um, but through the trials and tests and, and opportunities to serve and and improve, it just has been deepened uh, more and more. And I, it makes me sad when I see friends leave because I don't know everything. And I know that, that none of us will know everything. But I know enough right now that I'm I'm excited to be a part of all of this despite the many opinions that are out there and things that keep tearing down my generation and, and taking them away from the church. There's there's a lot of stuff that is hard for people right now and I'm grateful that it's it's been easy for me to stay. So in trusting in God, one of the I think the biggest moments where I realized um, just like the song that I need thee every hour. I was always a good kid. I never did anything that you know would cause me to have such a, a great repentance like Alma, like the younger. I mean, I I had it pretty easy, especially compared to you know, like for instance, my mom. Um, but after after my mission, I was uh, roommates with one of my mission companions who I, I adored. We had become such good friends, sisters in the gospel, and, and um, her friends had become my friends. And, and so I was living a great life and, and having a good time. And choices that she started to make were taking her away from the gospel and away from the church. And she, was, she started making big choices that I didn't agree with and that were difficult for me to handle. I had never had a close friend uh, leave the church in such a big way and become quite a different person. Um, it was hard for me to, to handle all of that. And I remember not only like, because I was losing her as a friend because she didn't, she no longer wanted to associate with me, but also the friends that I had made who, you know, were still staying in the church and everything, they were her friends first. And so it was difficult for me to still hang out with them without her and feel like it was you know, fine and everything. So it was, it not only was losing a best friend who I'd served a mission with, so it was more like family, but I was also losing the other group of friends that I had through her. And so my whole support system was kind of crumbling and it, 
life was just really hard at the time. I was feeling a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, just panic about trying to help my friend and feeling like I was failing at it, like not being that good companion that's supposed to be there for them and, and help them along the path, but also just not feeling alone and isolated and like, this isn't, this isn't fair. Um, but, but really just how could somebody who testified next to you in such powerful ways about the truthfulness of the gospel, leave it and leave it in such a, a big, a big way and, and almost fight against it, especially something that I had held so, so sacred and shared with her. Um, I remember praying a lot during that time and just trying to to get through days of big emotions and hard feelings and, and low feelings. And the Spirit speaking to me slowly but surely throughout this whole experience that I needed the atonement just as much as she did, that we were both beggars, that we were both flawed. Her, her sins were in my face and, and bigger and more outward, but I needed to be cleaned. I needed to be redeemed just as much as her, and I was no better. Um, and I, th I think that's where I really learned to see everyone as equals and see everyone um, more like the, the Savior sees them in that, that we're all on this, this plane together. Some of us sin in, in different ways, but it's all the same. We are all very much uh, in common that we need our Savior, and we have to trust in Him every day. It doesn't matter if you are a prophet or a nursery teacher or anything in between. The mighty can, can fall, and so we all have to every day not only trust in Him, but know that we need Him to keep that trust. What do I love most about the Calhoun Ward? Well, having grown up in it and being one of the only ones that you've probably had on this podcast um, that has grown up in the Calhoun Ward, I mean, it's pretty much the originals that are left, Sister Choate, Sister Bohannon. I know I'm probably missing somebody. I'm sorry. Um, I love how consistent it is. It's always been small. It's always been here in this building. I mean, we we did, so we were in the Rome Ward, and then we we became the Calhoun Branch, but we met in Adairsville in an office building. And then from there, we split, and Cartersville went their way, and Calhoun went their way. And uh, we met in another office building next to Home Depot. We met in the SDA church um, that's now a bank. Um, we're, we've, we've had some odd meeting houses, but we broke ground here when I was probably about six, and um, I love this building. It, it's always felt like coming home. It's always felt like the cradle of, of my, my progression. It's where I learned, where the Spirit speaks to me. It's where I learned how the church functions and my place in it. It's where I saw my parents serve countless times and sacrifice so much. It's where I was able to... Um, give my first talk. It's where I, all good things have come because of my membership in the Calhoun Ward. I have loved being a part of a small group because you get to do way more when there are few of you. And a lot of people see that uh, in a negative light and, and that's fine. I mean, to each their own. I, I know that the people that, that come to Calhoun 
um, need a small number because there's something that can be given to you here that can't be given in a, in a large ward. And it's fun to try and figure out what that is for everybody. Um, I love being able to know everybody's name, know everyone's face, and and have that, that tightness, that uh, acquaintance with everyone. I just, I know that Calhoun can be a very difficult city for the gospel, but those of us that are here, I think that we know how important it is um, because we don't experience, we don't run into many members out in Calhoun, out in the world. It's it's nice to come back together each Sunday and be strengthened by those that, that um, are the same as us. So yeah, I, I love this word. It, it's definitely changed many, many times. People have moved in and out over and over again, but it's always had the Spirit of the Lord here, and it's always been where all the things started for me. It's hard to put my finger on just one thing that I would want generations after me to know. Um, you know, mantras of my life kind of come to mind if I had any. <laughs> uh, one of the things my mom always taught me, she, she was one of the county directors of the Girl Scouts back when my sister was that age. And um, one of the rules of scouting is that you leave places better than you found them. And I think through the example of my family, um, we not only strive to leave places better than we found them, but we strive to leave people better than we found them. Um, and that's that's what I, I value, what I strive to do, and what I hope others will always strive to do is, as President Monson says, never let a problem to be solved be more important than a person to be loved. And um, that is is where I find joy is, not getting wrapped up in the temporal parts of life that that a lot of the time are good things, but finding the better things and the best things, which is our interactions with, with humans and the connection that we have with each other to try and solve disagreements, to uh, get rid of contentions, and to be unified in Christ is, is one of the ultimate achievements and desires of my heart and... Um, I find it to be extremely um, joyful in its mess. <laughs> I love the the journey. You never really arrive, and so you, you have to enjoy that that journey. You have to enjoy knowing that you're probably doing the exact same thing that people have done before you, but you're doing it in your own way to make that mark in your small part of the world. Um, you can easily be replaced, but you were given this this opportunity to do it here and now. So take advantage of it and, and see what the Lord is trying to make of you so that you thrive instead of just survive it. Well, that brings us to a close for this week's podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed the personal history and stories presented today. And most of all, I hope it has brought you closer to another member of our ward.